In recent days, the federal government has established a police task force to track down and eliminate organised criminal elements operating to defraud the National Disability Insurance Scheme. However, the PSA argues that just under a decade ago, our delegates and members who work in disabilities warned the New South Wales government of these and other risks associated with the privatisation and arm's length approach to disability services in New South Wales. For more on the removal of the regulations in New South Wales, our guest is PSA regional organiser Shane Elliott. I'm with PSA Southeast Regional Organiser Shane Elliott today. Shane, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. No worries at all. Shane, can you begin by telling us your story uh, working, uh, your vocational uh, journey in disability support work when you first started your career? Yes, so I started in uh, 1988. Uh, Them days it was seen as a career and you could uh, improve your skills and your abilities over the long term and I worked in the sector for 30 years um, as a disability worker, as a team leader at times and yeah, I loved it. Now Shane, tell us about the introduction of the NDIS at a federal level. What was your initial reaction to it, yours and your colleagues, um, in terms of the service you were providing your clients? So when it was first muted, most disability workers, or in fact all, were happy. They were ecstatic that at last disability services was being given the attention that it had so long needed. Uh, there were good quality services that were in play uh, across the government and the private sector, but there was a huge unmet need and everybody recognised that in the sector and they knew that NDIS could be the answer. Of course, it was sold to us on the basis of a universal health model, a universal disability model. But what we could see unfolding more and more was that it was just turning into an insurance model. And in fact, the name NDIS gives you the hint, it's about insurance. So all the talk about Medicare-type servicing for everybody was replaced with all the jargon and all the privatisation jargon and rhetoric of choice. And, of course, choice has been used as a way of uh, bringing in terrible things in in government services and using choice as the excuse to privatise government services. And at the end of the day... The clients that lived in group homes across New South Wales were given no choice. If you lived in Parramatta, the only choice you were given was Northcott to be privatised to. If you lived in Wollongong, the only choice you were given was House of No Steps. There was no choice. And certainly staff did have no choice whatsoever. In, in fact, the nurses' union used to... Uh, describe it as uh, industrial conscription, where we were just forced to go over to the private sector. Now, it, it was quite a disgusting thing. Absolutely. Now, can you take us a step back and explain to us the process by which the Gillard government, in its negotiations with the states, uh, proposed a coordination model with the Barry O'Farrell government of the time, the New South Wales state government, and 
you know, obviously the outcome which you've just described was uh, an absence of choice for the client. What were the O'Farrell government's decisions that led to uh, the removal of choice for the clients? So the whole point of the exercise was for government to step back to negate its responsibilities for direct servicing of people with disabilities. And I believe there was two reasons around that, at least two reasons. Uh, The first was when they are at arm's length, they can gradually remove funding and they can gradually make it harder and and more more hurdles to jump over to get the funding that's necessary. And we've already started to see that in the way that they are funding uh, MDIS, especially with people in group homes, uh, but not only people in group homes, people across the board where they have uh, lawyers and barristers on the MDIS side arguing the point with what parents might think their child needs. So, and the same thing's happening in group homes. So that was one of the, the motivations was to reduce the funding and of course, it's easier to do that when you are not directly responsible. I believe the second reason was simply to be at arm's length so that if things go wrong, when things go wrong, it's someone else's fault. It's not their direct responsibility. And of course, it's the worker that's unlucky enough to walk in on shift on that given day that ends up having the responsibility. Mm. They're the ones that end up having the disciplinaries. They're the ones that are accused of negligence because they were unlucky enough to walk in that day. Mm. But at at the bottom of it, it's really about government stepping back and letting and playing to that old trope of disabilities that it's about charity and it's about uh, uh, the good people providing services. It shouldn't be about that. It should be about rights and it should be about everyone has the right to live their best life. Some people might need more assistance than others because of what have you, but that's the way life is and a healthy uh, society will will look after that. Absolutely. Now, the the model of the NDIS at a federal level uh, has been yep. in the news uh, heavily in recent days uh, when it was yep. discovered that there have been large portions of organised crime groups exploiting the scheme uh, uh, with fraudulent yep. activity on a mass scale. There's a task force established to investigate these fraudulent claims at the moment. What was your involvement with the with the O'Farrell government in terms of noting and fighting them of the potential risks in, associated with the privatisation of the disability sector? Yeah, so gradually some of the, the experienced delegates could see that NDIS was going down the road of simply uh, justifying another privatisation. And when we were in consultations with uh, Family and Community Services Department and Michael Kutz-Trotter was the secretary at the time, uh, when we would point out some of our criticisms and some of our concerns and some of our fears for the future for disability services, Uh, he would accuse us of dark imaginings. That was the term he would use, dark imaginings. And in other words, we were just being 
unnecessarily cynical and alarmist. Well, tell that to Bill Shorten now. Tell that to all the people that are being scammed now. Talk to the people that are being denied the services that they were promised now. There was no dark imaginings. We knew that privatisation would lead to a deregulation of services. And while the right wing might say that's a good thing, in reality, services like disabilities need regulation. They need boundaries. They need parameters for the, the quality of services that will be provided. Without that, we end up going to the lowest common denominator. We've already seen multiple organisations just bounce up out of nowhere with no experience because there's a, a buck to be made. Now, it's great that more services are coming, but it's the quality of those services, it's the regulation of those services that is important. Um, it's well, I can remember walking out of those meetings. I can remember in those meetings saying to Coot Schrotter, what could go wrong? Must being sarcastic, must mm. have say it could all go wrong. And I don't even know the most cynical of people thought, you know, organised crime would get involved in mm. it. But we did know that the whole idea of reducing people's, you've got to understand deregulation of disability services is about looking for efficiencies. Mm. And we all know what they mean by efficiencies. Mm. They mean cutting wages and conditions of the workforce that are providing that service. So, in other words, Mary that's working every day of the week is now working a two-hour shift instead of a three-hour shift, right? Mm. And one of the concerns we saw very strongly was that if the business model depends on cutting people's wages and cutting people's shift lengths, if it depends on demonising full-time work, if it depends on creating a business model that requires sleepovers at night rather than night duties, so they're making people work for next to nothing on night shifts, right? Mm. And it's all in the name of efficiencies. It's all in the name of what the client needs, what the person with disability needs. Well, most people would admit that was a flawed business model, but yeah. that's what we've got at the moment. And, and, and the gangster stuff and the, the um, illegal activities, well, that's just topping it off because we knew one of the problems with deregulation was that we would end up with a very transitional workforce where people could not make this their career. They just had to do this while, as a stepping stone to do something else. And the problem with that is you're continually losing the corporate knowledge and one of the advantages we had in the old system was that you had veterans that were a long time in the field. They knew uh, they knew the job back to front and they knew personalities and, and the people that they were providing care for. And that's important when you're talking and you're dealing with people that are nonverbal. That's important when they have different modes of communication. It's good to know them and it's good to have 20 years' experience understanding what they're, they're trying to say. So all that's gone and the corporate knowledge that they have lost in the last five years since privatisation, it, it would be insurmountable. 
Shane, how can this web of fraudulent conduct, uh, the cancerous leeches onto, onto this scheme uh, over the course of a decade, how can all of this be unwound in your view? That's a really good question and I'm not sure I have the answer, but I think a part of it is creating a, a safety net, recognising that government services are there for a reason, that they're there for a purpose, to stop, listen, to, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid of economic rationalists thinking that the cheapest way is always going to be the better way. The cheaper way often costs you more in the long run. And when you talk to those families that have been scammed, I'm sure they would say that they feel like there's been costs there that the NDIS has promised a Medicare-style service, but it's delivered an insurance model that's been overtaken by the worst aspects of, of capitalism and there's a buck there to be made, let's do that. And um, I'm not saying the old system was perfect, but what I am saying is the old system should have been built on and should have been increased and enhanced where appropriate and extra funding should have went to areas that we all knew were unmet need. And there should have been a role for government in that. Um, it could be best practice. It could be the example of what to do. If it mucked up, it was better able to self-correct. Uh, nowadays, it's all about business. It's all about... And I've heard in NGOs say, well, we're not for profits, but that doesn't mean to say we're for losses either. So it's just... It's turned into a situation where I think the only way forward is to acknowledge the legitimate role of government in this space and to put that back in that space... Now, whether or not it's possible to renationalise disability services, I don't know. But it, it is possible for them to acknowledge that they need a stronger safety net and that government needs to play a part of that. Shane Elliott, it's so great to get your perspective on this. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, really eye-opening. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Protect yourself at work. Call the PSA today on one three hundred seven seven two. 679 or head to psa.asn.au